Hey guys, and welcome back to the Grad Life Podcast. Today we are joined by former professional footballer and current sales and trading employee at Morgan Stanley, James Daly. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I've been looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on. Brilliant. To begin things, can you tell us about your career as a footballer? Yeah, sure. So uh, I kind of had this sort of stereotypical route with football in the sense of at 16, uh, you leave school, you sort of sign uh, apprenticeship forms and you go full time. So at 16, I was spent some time with the Chelsea Football Academy and then I had kind of just started being recognised internationally uh, by Ireland. Um, my whole family live in Dublin, so eligible for Ireland in that sense, um, but also consider myself Irish. So uh, the Ireland manager at the time had good connections at QPR and they were just about to get promoted to the Premier League. And through that Irish connection, a few Irish lads there at the club, they invited me to join them um, on a two and a half year deal. So I went and joined QPR and started my apprenticeship forms there. Who, who was the Irish manager uh, so the scout uh, was a guy called Marco Tull uh, okay. and the Ireland manager. So this was at under 17 level now, not, okay. not first team. So uh, was, uh, I just had a mind back there. Uh, I had him on the tip of my tongue. But uh, so the, this manager basically said... John Morling, that was for, it, I think. For yeah. you to get game time with internationally, you need to go to QPR to get more game time there and then you can play play for play for Ireland um well I, I was just kind of on the radar at that point and uh so Marco Tall he was the Irish scout in charge of looking after the Irish lads from kind of Birmingham downwards so the my age group the likes of sort of Jack Grealish and myself he would be sort of that was as north as he'd go and it was his advice really that with the strong Irish connections there at the club that the youth team manager was Irish and his brother was also a coach there and they had good relationships with the with the Ireland managers at 17s and 19s levels and, and other lads at QPR representing the country. Uh, they thought it'd be a good spot for me to go. So it was sort of, yeah, I think it, it was them that made the introductions. Um, and then I went down to QPR and, and, and met them and trained there and, and then signed with QPR. So it kind of came about through through the international stuff. What was your initial contract with Chelsea? Uh, so just sort of academy, uh, nothing sort of and we'll, extravagant about we'll, it. So, so really. what does an academy contract mean? Well, it's so it, it depends. It's it's basically um, you know a, a registration as such. I believe similar to you know if, if you wanted to go and sign for your local Sunday league side and you needed to register, you'd put in the registration form. They'd register you with the FA and then you're kind of eligible to play for that club. You are registered to that club. You can't go and play for somebody else. So that's how the registrations work at schoolboy level, I believe. So I think a case of, um, unless you are signing a kind of your apprenticeship forms early or professional contracts as a kid, I think it's just a case of registration. And, you know, at the end of a season, the, the club will go, right, well, we want to register you for next season or we don't. Um, so I think that's, kind of how it works at schoolboy level up until 16. And that's when you are then kind of required to either join full time or you're released really at that point. And when you register for the Chelsea Academy, like that's an unbelievably competitive 
environment to get into but like just to get mm-hmm. there you have to be so good you have to be so much better than so many people you have to be one of the best players at your club at that point do you think not i've made it but i've got a really really good chance here at becoming a premier league footballer i'm in playing with one i'm in one of the biggest clubs in the world and playing with their academy or are you realistic enough to know that there's still a really long way to go despite the fact you've done incredibly well to get there already? That's a, that's a really interesting question. And I think it's something that in hindsight, I can probably look back at and answer it better now than I could at the time. At the time, I don't think I was able to kind of think that far ahead. Um, and so I don't think I was at that stage going, right, I've made it or I haven't quite made it. There's a long way to go. I think it was a case of just, I always wanted to sign for a professional club, um, got the opportunity to go in and spend some time there and started to think that, you know, right, this is going to happen in terms of signing. Always believed I was good enough. In terms of at that stage, uh, you know, there were, there were things said to me in terms of the, the Ireland scout at the time I had said to QPR that we've got a future international here. So I started to think, okay, been thought of quite highly. Um, you know, I always believed I was good enough, but I think it was my parents at that stage when I was 16 who were able to have the foresight to say, right, you know, continue with your education alongside football here because, you know, there is a long way to go. You never know what's going to happen. You could get injured, you could get released. And I was quite fortunate at 16, uh, you know, and especially moving to QPR, just signed to go, you know, full time professional at a Premier League club. And the last thing I wanted to be doing was my A-levels or, you know, leaving cert uh, as it would be over there. And it was my parents that went and approached QPR and said, look, he'll sign, but only if he can continue his A-levels. And I was very sceptical about that. I was saying, no, they, you know, they, they won't want to sign me if they have to, you know, let me do my A-levels. And fortunately, they pushed and, and the club agreed to do that. So ultimately, you kind of fast forward 10 years down the line. Um, I was able to kind of enroll in a university degree alongside football and then ultimately apply to Morgan Stanley. And those, those opportunities wouldn't have been in place if it wasn't for my parents kind of pushing at the time. So a very long-winded answer to that. But effectively, you know, I, I don't think as a 16-year-old, I had the foresight to go, I've made it or I've not made it. I think it was more my parents that were ensuring I had backup plans in place, really. What's it like playing at Chelsea? I presume their facilities are world-class. And did you get any exposure to world-class players or world-class managers? Uh, so at Chelsea, you know, at, at the way it works there at the club is you come into the training ground and you've got the academy side and you've got the first team side. So the first team are kept separate to the academy the majority of the time. So at 16, I was occasionally coming in on what they called day release. So you'd take a day out from school and you'd come in and you'd train with the youth team or, or other under 16s that were in at the time. So in terms of world-class players, you know, they were world-class players at that age group. So the likes of Ruben Loftus-Cheek was that age group. You had Nathaniel Shalabar, John Swift, Lewis Baker, all guys that have gone on to have incredibly good careers. Did these guys um, stand out so, hugely at that, at that level? Could you tell they were going to go on? Yeah, so I think that uh, at that level, everybody 
sorry, yeah, to retrack on what I was saying, so the conversion rate for the Chelsea Academy, I think, is very high in terms of the best academies in the world, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you are training in a squad of, let's say, I don't know, uh, 16 to 18 of you maximum, but, you know, 16 to 18 of the best young players, not only in the country, sometimes around the world. So, you know, I don't think anyone particularly stood out in the sense that they are miles ahead because a lot of those players have all gone on and had great careers and, and the differences are very, very minute. So the standard is exceptionally high across the whole team. So I don't think anyone really kind of stood out exceptionally in, in my memory at that time, in the boys that I trained with. Um, I think kind of as I got a little bit older and moved to QPR and was playing with Ireland and then there were players that, that stood out um, at, at that point. But uh, when we were that young, I don't, don't really remember as such. What's it like then going to QPR? So you've gone from one of the biggest clubs in, in world football to a much smaller club. Did, did it feel like you were taking the right decision for your career? <laughs> it's funny. I mean, yeah, I hope no QPR fans listen to this. They won't, uh, they won't take kindly to a much smaller club when they are uh, massive rivals with Chelsea. But funnily enough, uh, the QPR training ground at the time was, was Chelsea's old training ground. And, okay. um, you know, the, the thing that, you know, from the outside, you might think, you know, a, a much smaller club, but QPR was still a Premier League club. A very wealthy club at the time so the facilities were uh, not as good as they should have been for a Premier League club at that stage but they were investing you know a fortune in it so there was no issues with pitches or access to the gym or access to pools and physios and excuse me conditioning coaches etc so you know at the time it doesn't feel like you're going to you know the dog and duck down the road it's a seriously professional environment so um, I, I knew that all the boys there, we were, we were at a Premier League club. We were surrounded by some fantastic players, particularly uh, when Tony Fernandez came in and, and, and at that point, just after Neil Warnock, when Mark Hughes came in and, and we signed a load of players. We had some guys who were kind of quite instrumental in terms of kind of guiding the club, changing the club and guys with big backgrounds. So, you know, ultimately we had the likes of Rio Ferdinand in there, Joey Barton, Sean Phillips, guys who would be well-known English internationals coming to play at the club. So it, there was a real sense of, of trying to learn and a real sense of, you know, there's people here who have, who have earned their stripes, even guys that, you know, name dropping wise wouldn't be as well-known, but to QPR fans, guys who are absolute legends who got them promoted through the leagues and, and up to the Premier League and deserve a huge credit for that. Did you ever watch that documentary, QPR, The Four-Year Plan? I did, I did, uh, and it's it's interesting watching that kind of. I joined towards the back end of that, really, um, and it's yeah. As sort of Tony Fernandez was, was taking over, things were changing for the better in terms of what was going on with the owners. So I think that the season I joined in kind of the February time, um, and then come the summer, it, it was it was all change. Uh, the club were being promoted, new owners, and. It, yeah, so I, I was only kind of <laughs> aware of it through the documentary, just like, you know, yourself, if you watched it, but not uh, on, on the inside of it. Okay, okay. You, you didn't experience the circus that, that was going on back then? No, I mean, you know, I, I'm wary of, of saying you know, too much about clubs, but, you know, QPR was a club in transition. And I think that 
I would like to think if you look at where the club is now, it's a lot more settled than it was when I was there during that time. I mean, we had loads of different managers. We were kind of rebounding up and down a little bit. Um, you know, there were players coming and going all over the place. And yeah, it wasn't a it wasn't a very stable time to be at the club. And I don't think anyone can dispute that. Um, so, you know, comfortable enough kind of mentioning that really. And what was it like then training with people like Joe Barton and Rio Ferdinand each day? Yeah, so I had uh, limited experience. You know, I wasn't uh, kind of the, the youth team typically would train on a different pitch to the first team. So you'd watch them training a lot more than you train with them. But, you know, I had the opportunity a lot of the time in reserve team games before it became under 23s where uh, it was still effectively, you know, first team level. There was no age group. And when any first team players that didn't play on a Saturday in the Premier League, they'd be playing for the reserves on a Wednesday with us, really. And then, you know, training would be mixed. Sometimes you'd be called up to train with them. But yeah, the experience was was incredible. Um, you know, the, the first day that I trained with the first team and it was I was sort of surprised. I think they were short in numbers. I got called over. And it was just kind of almost a little bit daunting. And the funny thing is that I rang my uncle. So my dad's uncle played for Manchester United and, and Ireland. And he's actually in the Hall of, Hall of Fame back home in Ireland. And What's his name? Uh, uh, Jerry Daly. Okay. So, yeah, he uh, was someone that I spoke to a bit throughout my career. Um, and I remember ringing him after that first session and said, God, I actually felt really nervous. And I was surprised by his reaction. I kind of expected him to say, oh yeah, that's normal. But actually he said, why? He said, you shouldn't be nervous at all. So it's a lot easier said, but when you're with players like that and you know you make a mistake and you, you sort of, they hold you to a much higher standard, um, it was almost a little bit nerve wracking really the first time you go and do something like that. Were you getting barked at in training? Uh, yeah, I mean, only from a from a competitive point of view. Some some players are better than others. Naturally, um, you know, players will have will either be kind of quite calm towards you and quite welcoming. Uh, I remember, sort of Luke Young on that very first session was very helpful, kind of put me at ease a little bit more. Whereas um, some other players were just straight away, which. I actually think is, is an okay mentality. It's like, right, you're training with us. We'll hold you to the same standards that we hold anyone in the first team. So there's no leeway. I make a, you know, a, a stray pass. Um, we were kind of playing a five-a-side. I tried to turn the ball around the corner to Sean Wright Phillips, who got intercepted. And Joey Barton screamed at me, then went and won the ball back. And then it, everything was back to normal. So it was kind of, you know, everybody reacted different ways. And, and that player in particular, Joey Barton, he was vocal like that. He might have been tough on you on the pitch, but actually he was one of the guys off the pitch who I found most accommodating to the youth team and most willing to give advice um, and obviously very willing to voice his opinions. I have to ask about Rio Ferdinand QPR because it didn't go that well for him that year. He was there. Some people said it was like a glorified retirement. Uh, Puns from the outside said it looked like he wasn't really trying when you trained with him, could you still tell that this guy was a world-class centre-back? Did he yeah, so, well, a really like so, professional attitude each day? Or could you even sense 
anything different. So with Rio, um, for me, there was not much of a crossover. Um, I'm not sure there was, I'm not sure if there was, yeah, a, a crossover at all, really. I, his, his brother Anton was at the club. Um, and then just before I moved on, the youth team moved to a different training ground. Uh, I think, you know, Harry Redknapp kind of separated the first team in order to try and keep the club in the Premier League. So um, when I think the youth team moved back to the same ground as the first team, uh, I'd already moved on from the club. So I can only kind of go on, on what other people said. Um, I think it was, you know, a case of, I, I, I can't speak for his mentality. Uh, you know, I don't know him, um, but anything I've heard about is that his mentality is, is top class. That's why he's a top class player. Just maybe at that stage, he came into a team that, you know, wasn't as good as the team that, that he was playing in. Um, and it required more from him that potentially at the end of his career, he wasn't able to give, but you know, that's just speculation. I don't, you know, I wasn't actually there to see him um, each day in training. So, so I don't really know. Yeah. I, I heard Carger talking about this. He said um, he was offered I think he was offered Wigan at the end of his career. And he said no, because he thought he would look like crap. I said, John Terry asked him about this as well. I think John Terry was thinking about going to Bournemouth one year and told him, don't right. do it. Like you're going from a going from a team where you have sort of 60% possession, um, not a huge amount, is, not as much as asking you as a centre-back than if you went to a lower league team and, and you can stand out like that. And he was just saying with the Rio case, like it didn't mean he was a bad player going to QPR. Then it was just, it was just such a huge transition for, a 34 year old center have to go through at that phase that very few yeah you know I, I was out i was out for a jog the other day and i was listening to a podcast with, with uh jimmy bullard and, and bobby zamora uh so obviously bobby was at qpr when i was there and he was there when rio came and he was saying the same thing in his opinion it's just that you know you go to man united where they have so much possession and uh rio is just able to kind of dictate the game from the back and then you go to a team that's bottom of the Premier League and you are, you know, massive signing for the club, you're expected to be you know, the best centre-half the club's ever seen. So, yeah, there's probably so much pressure on him when at that stage, you know, he probably wasn't able as he was when he was younger to be faster than the centre-forwards and you know, be kind of picking up for others around him. I think he probably needed stronger kind of centre-half full-backs alongside him or to be at a club where they were going to have a lot more possession. So, you know, I think maybe if he'd have gone to a team in the championship that were up the top of the table where they were more likely to be dominating games, he probably would have looked, you know, just as good as he did at Man United. I think going to a team at the bottom of the league and putting yourself under that much pressure uh, was probably why, you know, he, he didn't stay particularly long at the club. On that, I was listening to an interview with, I forget the guy's name. He was an Irish player that was in the Manchester City Academy for a good few years. Nearly got into the City First team. But he plays. He plays in the Irish League now. Um, actually, I think he made his debut. Jack Byrne. Jack Byrne, that's it. And yeah. he was talking about how at City, you might be playing at under 19 or under 18 level. You can be one of the best players in Man City. And then all of a sudden, they are, they've bought in some kid from Real Madrid for £7 million who's 16, but he has to start ahead of you because he's comes in with a price tag and you're loaned out to a league two side where you go from playing in the man city under 18s where you're playing other teams each week you're having sort of 60 percent possession every other player around you is like really technically gifted so then you go mm -hmm. to play league two you're playing with fully grown men 
probably aren't as technically gifted as the players are playing with in the Man City uh, youth team, but they're, they're men. And the team you might be playing with might have 30% possession. And all of a sudden, you might have been this incredibly classy, slick centre midfielder for City at under 18 level. But at League Two senior level, you can't make the same impact at all. And I said a lot of players kind of just end up being flushed out this way, never, never get the opportunity to achieve their full potential for that reason, for these kind of loan moves. Do you have any insight on that? Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I would have listened to the same interview or the same podcast uh, where he mentioned this. It was on off but, the ball. He was talking about it. Yeah, um, he, I can, I can relate to that in the sense of, you know, if you look at QPR at the time, it, it probably wasn't a very good time to be at the club as a young player. You know, we signed what it was, eleven or eleven players and. Or I think it might have been more than that in two transfer markets. So over the course of one season, you know, the first team squad was absolutely massive. And so what it meant is if you didn't play in the first team on a Saturday, you were going to play in the reserves on a Wednesday, which meant that the young pros that were supposed to be kind of playing in the reserves on the fringe of the first team are now not getting a game. So they then play for the youth team. And at that stage, you've then got pros playing for, you know, the under 18 side. And so then that knocks on some of the under eight, under 18s who go and play for the under 16s. So the opportunities are a lot harder to come by. So although it may have not, you know, QPR might not have been bringing in, you know, the best academy talent at 16, 17, because they couldn't have afforded it. But then with the new owners, they were bringing in what they thought was the best first team players. And that has the same kind of knock on effect. So lads struggle and you're not going to get the same development playing for, you know, the under 16s, if you're 18 or likewise, if you're 21 and you're playing for the under 18s, you're just not going to get that same exposure and same development. Um, and so you do need to go at that point and play first team football and, and experience kind of what what it means to, to guys that, you know, their livelihoods are on this. They're, they're feeding families, paying mortgages, etc. Um, and they're not getting paid the same wages that you would potentially, you know, in the Premier League. And I think that's one of the changes that happened, so to go from a reserve team to change the structure to under 23s was, was a big ask in terms of giving players the same development um, because you're not playing against men, you're playing at an under 23, excuse me, under 23 level. Um, and so, yeah, Jack going out on loan um, is kind of into deep water and someone who uh, has a kind of a playing style that, that I can relate to, not the biggest, uh, like to play kind of in between the lines, very, very slick on the ball, pride myself on kind of never giving it away, but but linking up with people. So if you were playing in a team with very little possession or playing in a team with less technical players, I don't think I'd look very good in that situation because I'm not somebody like Messi who goes and dribbles past five people. I like to pass it and move it. But if you're not passing it and you're also not getting it back from your teammates, then you know what 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 impact are you going to have on the game? So yeah, that's the that's the difficulty. And that that probably does happen to to a lot of people who just can't who end up dropping down a lot further than they should in order to to kind of get playing where they can dominate a game because you know the standard dictates that. This is one of the things that really fascinates me about football because it's the most played sport in the world and the most competitive sport in the world. You have so many professional footballers, but so many that, that don't get to the very to, 
to the very top level that don't get to the Premier League. And you you can have someone in League Two who potentially could be good enough to for a Premier League team, but didn't get there for those reasons we've outlined. Mm-hmm. Even with well, the, kind you know, of- the, the caveat to that, the caveat to that, when once you're when you're in football um, and you've experienced different levels, uh, it, I find it's probably the only thing with regards to football fans, people that haven't played at that level, that, that grinds my gears a little bit in the sense of you take a player that's playing League Two level, you take a player that's playing, you know, uh, National League now, um, you know, same with the League of Ireland at the top clubs there, etc. Um, these guys are exceptional footballers and the standard is exceptionally high. Like I, I remember after QPR going and spending some time at other clubs like Bournemouth, Gillingham, uh, AFC Wimbledon, and then when I returned from Scotland, signed for Bromley in the Conference Prem, uh, the, the National League. And I remember the first time I went to Bromley and I thought, gosh, this is, you know, the National League. I wonder if the standard's going to be good or not. Turned up there, standard is excellent. These guys are all full-time professional. They've made league appearances. Um, so it's probably the only thing where, you know, when people say, oh, you know, going to a rubbish team or whatever, rubbish maybe in comparison to Man United, but still these guys are exceptionally talented. What you're saying is the, 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 the difference is, is minute. So there's a guy, as you said, in League Two who is exceptional. Um, and the only difference between going from, say, League One to the Championship or League Two up to the Championship is so minute that occasionally it's just, yeah, you need a little slice of luck. You know, you score a goal in front of a Championship manager that's, that's there to watch the game or, you know, someone, you know, your manager moves from League One to the Championships brings you with him so a lot of the time the difference in the players might not be that much um and and you need a little slice of luck and that is a huge part of football we listen to any podcast you talk to any player um they they'll all say there's a huge amount of luck involved i mean you know you've got to avoid injury you've got to have people that like you um and, and things have got to fall your way it's probably one of the things where you compare it to a solo sport i always used to look and almost envy um runners or envy golfers because the scores don't lie the stats don't lie you shoot you know 12 under consistently you're a great golfer whereas in football you know you could do so much for the team in terms of breaking up play winning the ball back and without detailed statistics it's just an opinion really you can't kind of you know fight your case in that in that sense so yeah completely agree again a kind of long-winded answer but to bring it back it's it, I completely agree you do need a slice of luck and there's a lot of players who I think were exceptional footballers and people who should have gone on and had exceptional careers that, that aren't even playing the game. So on that, I, I read um, Soccernomics a few years ago, which is Simon Cooper's book. He's a Financial Times journalist and he wrote about mm-hmm. the the um, the impact economics is having on football, about how more and more clubs are becoming more data-driven and how in the past players were just picked based on um, a scout's opinion, whereas now clubs have like huge masses of data on each player before they sign them. However, even with that, there's still so many inefficiencies in how clubs recruit players and clubs could definitely be doing it better. Outside of luck, is there anything else you identified during your time as a footballer that you think clubs should implement to make sure that those guys that do end up in League Two who are actually going to for the Premier League, is there anything else they can do to try and make sure they, they end up playing at the, the highest level? I think it's that's a that's a tough question um and i think it's 
a little the onus is a little bit on the player um and also a little bit on the club i think the clubs need to encourage those relationships within the club in the sense of you know if your manager likes you but doesn't think you're quite good enough for this club will they help you by putting you in touch with you know another manager that's going to suit your style of play i think a lot of it now is ultimately left to agents and and friends of the friends of the player to kind of go to another club that they think would suit their style of play and say hey you know this player is really going to suit you but sometimes there's, there's no relationship there um and you know i know that a lot of clubs deal with agents day to day and you know a lot of agents are great some agents aren't you know so they're probably sick of calls all day every day uh, so i think that if the clubs are able to kind of treat their players a bit more as as family especially the younger players then that would help you know the older players are if they've made appearances and you know they've got their career settled and they've got good agents that's that's a different story and i understand that clubs are like well you know there might not be any loyalty from this player to us but i think to younger players the club have to be the ones that put their neck on the line and and show their younger players that loyalty and and you know just for the goodness of the game and the goodness of the sport to go and help them in terms of building relationships at other clubs i, I just don't think that's something that that's done it's not something that was done for me when you finished playing with QPR, where, which club did you go to after? So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> more clubs than Tiger Woods, really. I kind of <laughs> um, went, went and spent a bit of time with, with a lot of different clubs. Um, was also playing non-league at the time. Um, and so I was, I was with Derby County um, and I was playing for the Met Police, which were uh, so the league below the conference tiers in England. And I went and signed for Drada United. Uh, so went back to live with the family and play Premier Division football in the League of Ireland and, you know, a club that had been successful in Europe and moved over and signed, made my debut on Satanta Sports against Dundalk in the derby. And then unfortunately, uh, a couple of days later, broke my leg in training. So was injured for about the better part of a year um, and then had the opportunity to move to Scotland with Airdrie. Um, they were pushing to get promoted, kind of new owners. And I think the aim ultimately was to get to the, to the SPL. Um, so yeah, moved to Glasgow and didn't, didn't really enjoy it. Didn't, didn't have a great time there. Um, started really well, but kind of, it was more stuff off the pitch and on the pitch, which was, which was tough. Um, you know, moving to a different country uh, where you had no friends, no family, and um, kind of being a bit of an outsider there at the club, not very many what they'd consider foreign players there. So, um, yeah, I didn't, didn't feel kind of particularly welcome. And, and obviously that's going to affect your football. And once it affects your football and you're not playing and you fall out with management staff, as we had kind of, I think, four, four different managers in the first six seven months that i was there it was just a crazy time and uh yeah it was it was quite tough to be living up there and and kind of not enjoying yourself so i was quite fortunate then uh managed to get the opportunity to come back to bromley in the conference prem and uh at that point took up a university degree alongside football and it was kind of from that point that I did a three-year course at Loughborough in business finance and economics and actually 
you know, moved back to Dublin, was playing for UCD in the uh, Premier Division there in the League of Ireland and, and kind of just doing all my uni university work online and flying over for my exams. So kind of actually did it all, did it all remotely. And then ultimately to kind of finish the story as such, probably one of the few people to benefit from COVID in the sense that football stopped and I had a degree and I kind of had the opportunity to go, well, this is something I really like, passionate about finance, you know, started looking into some of the roles, made some applications and, you know, unbelievably grateful and fortunate to secure a role with Morgan Stanley. And it was an absolute no brainer then at that point to, to go down this route and kind of just look back on football as something that was great, that helped build my character, gave me some great memories. And, you know, my relationship with football now is, is to try and help others and educate players in the sport and kind of help them to kind of keep their options open in terms of what, what I was able to do. Um, and I think I'd encourage every player to do it. So that's kind of the story and the relationship that I have with the sport now. Just to rewind it back a bit, when did mm. you first realise that making a living out of this possibly wasn't going to happen for you? I, I, I don't know if it, it was a, a realisation in the sense of, you know, I, I think you've got to be a little bit mad to be a professional sports person you have that sort of almost unbeatable belief and desire I mean at, at no point did I feel that uh, I wasn't good enough to make a living out of the sport and um, you know that strangely well I mean not strangely in my mind that that hasn't changed I, I still um, would believe that I could have made a living out of it um, and it was just kind of a, a lifestyle choice, really. I, I think that I wanted to, I'd given so much to football, uh, you know, 10 years of commitment and, you know, only kind of a month off a year. So not that much holiday. And I think it was just a case of, right, well, I really enjoyed it. Uh, but I also have a passion for something else and wanted to, give myself the opportunity to broaden my horizons, do something else. And, and so it was a case of, um, yeah, kind of a lifestyle choice and, and a career choice rather than at any point going, right, you know, I'm not going to make a living out of this. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of interesting thought process. It, it, you know, in hindsight, I don't look back at any one more moment and go, right, you know, this isn't working for me. I think it was more just a case of, um, you know, wanting a change. Okay, just to conclude our chat on football, I've got a couple of quick fire questions I have to ask you. Can you yeah, tell me the three best players you ever played with and just give me a brief reason why for each one? Uh, Jack Grealish, okay. uh, playing for Ireland. Um, he was probably one of the only players when I came off the pitch that my dad said, oh, you're, you're number seven there on the wing. Obviously, he didn't know him, didn't know his name at the time. Uh, he, was, he was exceptional. And, you know, I was very fortunate to play with some incredible footballers over the years. Um, and he was one of the only ones that, uh, yeah, my dad said afterwards, like exceptional footballer. What In sort of player of, was he back then? Was he like a silky wide winger? Yeah, he was a winger. Um, and uh, we were over in Portugal. And, and I remember uh, they were had, every time he got the ball, I mean, they must have known about him from 
uh, you know, Ireland playing over there before or whatever, that he was a seriously good footballer. So every time he got the ball on the wing, he'd have three players go over to tackle him. And he was just so casual with the way he rolled his foot over the ball. I'll never forget it. And a player would dive in and he'd step by him. And then the next player would dive in and step by him. And I just was, yeah, he, he was incredibly, incredibly talented with a, with a ball at his feet. Um, so he's one, I'd say, keeping on sort of that trend. Adel Tarak was an absolute magician at QPR and, uh, you know, the assistant manager and everyone listened to people on the radio saying this guy could be one of the best in the world. And he really could have. I just think that he uh, didn't take full advantage of the ability he had. He was just that, that season he had in the championship was insane. Like one of the greatest. Oh, he's unto- he was untouchable. Yeah. He was just untouchable. And, and I used to love when, um, so when I first joined QPR and I was probably still 16. And, and so, uh, you know, we, we trained separately to the first team and, and sometimes they might, you know, if they had a game the night before, they might train after us. So we got the opportunity to just sit and watch training. And he would just, just, it just the flair that he had is unbelievable. You know, I just wouldn't ever it was, it was consider wrong trying was. something like that. He really was, yeah, really was. Um, so yeah, he he was just spectacular to watch because you never knew what he was going to do. Um, it was always, you know, you'd be taking bets on how many nutmegs he'd get in training this day or next day. It's just absolutely outrageous. Um, so yeah, incredibly talented. And then third, oh, it, it, it's difficult because there's so many that I've been fortunate to play alongside that doing a disservice to a lot of people um i would say in the interest of time i will go with a player that uh i played against actually um and just because it was almost surprising because he was playing out of position and it was one of my first experiences of playing against first team players was uh played against tottenham when jake livermore was there and he played centre half for them that day and was just untouchable. Um, he was really, really good. It just absolutely ran the show, um, and but ran it from an ability point of view. So no one could get near him. He never gave the ball away. He was taking it down at centre half and beating players. It was just exceptional. Um, and I walked away from that thinking, right, he's got to be an England international. And he went on to get a call up. Um, in terms of dominating the game vocally, uh, would be Colo Torre. So up in Scotland, played against Celtic and Colo Torre was still playing at this point. It was just before he kind of converted to being a coach. He played centre-half and um, I've, I've never seen a player dictate a game the same, but from the other perspective, just verbally talked every player through the game in terms of their positioning. He helped the young lads. He just, yeah, read the game unbelievably well, as you'd expect, and just... You know, no one could, uh, no one could touch him. So, yeah, they're they're the ones I'll go for. Nice, that was a really good answer. Final one on football was regarding Jack Grealish. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think he was going to be an Irish international, or did you think he was using Ireland as a stepping stone to get into England? <laughs> oh, controversial. controversial. Sorry, but uh, we have to ask. It, it's it's such yeah, a listen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know. <laughs> If it was me, you know, for me, I I am Irish and like all I wanted to do was play for Ireland. You know, 
my treasured possessions are my, my Ireland debut shirt and I, I go and follow Ireland and I just dreamed of playing for the country. Um, myself and Jack and I think there was two others in the squad with English accents um, who you know, considered themselves Irish. And Jack used to say that he would always play for Ireland. Um, and I used to say the same. And, you know, I know that I know that I meant it. Obviously, you know, he, he didn't because he's gone to play for England. But he would say that the environment was nicer in the Ireland squad. We, you know, we had a great laugh when we went away. And the camaraderie was good. Um, he would talk about how the kind of environment in England wasn't the same in terms of the egos and stuff because he had a little bit of experience with with the England team as well as with the Ireland team at that age. Um, so, you know, he, he was adamant that he wanted to play for Ireland at the time. Um, obviously, that went on to change. So that's kind of my perspective on it. I don't think he was using Ireland as a stepping stone. I, I, I generally believe that at 17, 18, and we were playing for Ireland. He wanted to play for Ireland, um, but ultimately his decision changed somewhere and he wanted to go and play for England. Um, yeah, I think Roy Keane and Martin yeah. O'Neill have a lot to answer for there. I think they made a few uh, unwelcoming comments about his dad, uh, which didn't... Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think Roy Keane said the dad was tough to deal with or something like that. Like it, it sounded like it was so close and had the management have been correct at the time, they, they could have got it over the line. Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, I'd caveat that with if, if a player really wanted to play for Ireland, he'd have played for Ireland. If, yeah. if, if, you know, they were trying to call him up and his dad was being difficult, um, if, you know, if that was the case or they felt that, you know, Jack was a certain level and required, you know, certain guarantees to be part of the squad, then ultimately, in my mind, as harsh as it is, then you shouldn't be involved in the squad. You know, people would give, people would give anything to play for Ireland. Um, and if you've got a lad who is not fully committed, then, you know, if, if, if that is the case, and basically Roy Keane and Martin O'Neill said, no worries then, then uh, that's understandable in my mind. Yeah. Okay. Tell us about your current role. What do you do on a day-to-day basis? So uh, I'm in prime brokerage at Morgan Stanley. So it's uh, under the sales and trading division. It's front office role and it's, it's client facing in terms of describing the role. The best way to describe it to people that have no idea about finance and even some people that do is when you walk into a restaurant and you're greeted by the person who is front of house um, and they kind of welcome you and they ask, you know, whether you're booking what you're interested in and they take you to their to the table. That's effectively what I am for sales and trading. So it's a relationship role, uh, relationship management. We do everything pre and post execution maybe excuse me mainly post execution services but so the only thing that i don't do is the physical trading so for example a client might come to us and say we want to trade in tunisia or trade these tunisian securities and so it's my role then to um, make sure they're set up to do that kind of if that involves any sort of tax implications, if that involves setting up accounts um, and kind of help them in terms of then, you know, positioning themselves so that they are set to trade uh, at that point, they will go to our execution desk, execute the trade, and then it comes back to us and we take custody of that trade. And so then we're responsible for, you know, booking the trade, we're responsible for um, keeping them updated on 
positions and you know, corporate actions and anything that's going to relate to you know, what we've taken custody of in terms of you know, their, their assets. Okay, and it seems like now you're very passionate about helping people that were in your position make that transition mm-hmm. from being a sports person into the corporate world. What, um, what, what are you doing to, to help people in that regard? And what sort of initiatives are you looking at implementing? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of it at the moment is just off my own back in terms of talking to people, reaching out to people, a bit like, you know, taking the opportunity to, to speak with you, which I'm really grateful for. Um, it's, it's, yeah, been a bit of a kind of one man band at the moment, although, um, you know, the PFA are excellent with regards to offering footballers in particular opportunities um, and you know, they gave me the opportunity to do an interview with them, which hopefully kind of spread the word a little bit on that. Um, and but but mainly, I've kind of reached out to a lot of other pros across different sports. I've spoken with spoken with some professional rugby players, professional jockeys, other professional footballers, friends of mine still in the game, um, to kind of try and understand as much as I can about lots of different people um, and you know how to help uh, kind of everybody in terms of their diversity. So where you're from or what you believe in, if I can learn as much about that as possible, then, um, you know, you can kind of understand how you can help everybody across, you know, all walks of life. And through Amplify Trading, I had the opportunity to speak to a lot of students in terms of kind of helping guide them towards the services of Amplify. And so it's kind of, yeah, through, through initiatives, just sort of off my own back at this stage, I mean, I have, you know, great plans for setting up something more formal going forward um, and, you know, taking opportunities through Morgan Stanley to mentor people um, through their kind of giving back schemes, et cetera. Um, So, yeah, at at the moment, it's nothing structured, but I'd love to put something in place um, in order to, to kind of make something, yeah, more substantial. How do you think the UK system compares with America? In America, you have... Uh, and a pathway to professional sports there which marries education however a lot of people would say that these these guys that got uh, scholarships to go to d1 schools for american football uh that then get a that then finish their their four years there but don't aren't good enough to make the nfl their degrees aren't even worth the paper they're written on because they essentially just don't have to go to college for the four years um whereas in the uk i guess it's very hard to marry education and football what are your opinions on both of these models? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I'm glad you asked that question actually, because it's when I before I secured a role with Morgan Stanley, I wrote a blog I think uh, called uh, FIFA Twenty to Finance Graduates. So um, you know, when I started applying uh, to these roles, I was still on FIFA, um, <laughs> and I kind of wrote at the start of it in terms of how the American system is geared towards hand-in-hand education and sport whereas the UK particularly football doesn't seem to be that way inclined I mean we've all watched the movies like the coach carters etc where players are told oh you're not allowed to play if you're not getting the grades and whether you have much experience of America or not I would say that a lot of people know that college sport is absolutely massive Uh, I had uh, some family friends who are from Tennessee, they said that there was 100,000 people watching their college football team play over there. Um, So there's a real route through 
college into professional sport through the draft system. Uh, and I think that is excellent. I, I, that is superb. I think that over here, players, you know, I can only really talk for football because obviously it's, it's the experience I had. Uh, you know, I wouldn't want to comment on other people's sports, but you're faced with almost a dilemma at 16. You know, if you are very academically capable and you think, right, I could go and get you know, three A stars at A level, um, but, you know, I'm also very good at football and I'm going to go and sign for Colchester United and, you know, they only have the setup there for me to do the education that's through provided through the EFL and the FA um, in terms of sort of the, the courses that they run, but you want to do something else you know, some people might not be as fortunate as me in terms of having that backing from my parents at the time to go and speak to the club uh, and open those doors for me. And excuse me, as I said, you know, in hindsight, it's great to look back at the time. Would I have made that decision on myself? No, I don't think so, um, quite honestly. And so how can we expect any other player at 16 when they're, you know, handed this decision, right, do I go and be a professional footballer or do I go and do my A-levels? And there's no obvious way for them to do the both without having someone like I had with my parents to go and speak to the club. I think if there was a way in the UK where we could tie it together better and follow a US model, then that would be, yeah, I'd love to see something like that. All right, to wrap up the interview, we always ask our guests if there's any book they've read that's had a big impact on their life and that they'd recommend. Yeah, I'm going to go um, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. Oh, by, yeah, by Daniel, um, um, what's his face, Daniel Kahneman or something? Yeah, Daniel, yeah. yeah, I really, really enjoyed that. I liked the idea of, of biases and, and, yeah, the the mental side of, yeah, just sort of every day-to-day bias. You hear, you know, you hear so much in sport about how important the, you know, the mental side of the game is um, and having experienced that. Um, it was something that then I was interested to to kind of learn more about the mind. I love I love stuff like that. Um, and so yeah, if you have kind of n- no insight at all in terms of how your mind works or in terms of biases, or you want to kind of just read something that is really interesting and cool, absolutely, I'd go for that. Brilliant, James. It's been so good having you on. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. This has been uh, a really no. I really, I really, really appreciate. It. Thanks for having me on. Um, the one thing I do want to say before before we go, just very briefly, in terms of you know, as obviously grad life, talking to to grads here and people studying. Um, if you are looking for roles in in finance, for except uh, for example, um, you don't need to kind of have done maths or economics or whatever I, I would encourage any student to embrace their diversity you know if you love fishing or you love playing an instrument embrace that own that you know that's what's going to make you different um, I know at Morgan Stanley in particular we've got people who really successful executive directors who had a geography degree or you know ex-military um, people from you know, senior people from universities that aren't Oxford and Cambridge. So um, that's what makes the team so great, that, that diversity. And that's a message that, yeah, I wanted to post to to anyone who does listen to this and, and yourselves. Just, yeah, absolutely don't be afraid to go and embrace that diversity. Fantastic. Okay, James, great chatting to you. Brilliant. Thanks, Finn.